0: Thank you so much for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about Our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Tonight, I'm I'm, going to be speaking on one of my favorite subjects. I think the reason why, it's probably the one subject That's affected me personally more than a lot of the material that I talk on and everything. Uh, Because growing up, I didn't learn a lot about relationships. Uh, My family was kind of like a hellhole. Uh, My father was drunk all the time. And when he wasn't trying to literally kill my mother, I was trying to kill him. My oldest brother sued my parents for everything they had and he got everything. Everything he took. Cabin at the lake, all the money, everything. And you know, he probably deserved it because probably my dad uh, really screwed him or something, this kind of man that my father was. My one uh, other brother ran away from home. I don't know where he is now. That was years ago. My sister left home and went and joined the army just to get away. Uh, and my other sister got married really young so she could move out, and I was left with all the consequences. And growing up, I didn't know how to build relationships. I'd never seen them. Uh, Because research shows you mainly learn how to relate in relationships from family members. Well, I didn't have a family that had relationships that you definitely would ever want to follow or anything and so I had to learn after I became a believer I plagiarized I when I would go to church I would see certain parents that seemed to have a good marriage and they would be with their kids talking to kids and I would get close to learn from them I watched other people just saying what can I find that will help me be a better husband and a better father and I don't think anyone could have searched harder for that than I did and The results of what I'm going to share tonight are seven principles. Seven principles I learned in plagiarizing other people. I didn't create any of these principles. I stole them from others uh, as I watched them use these principles in relationships. Seven steps of developing loving, close relationships. Seven steps. I call them the seven A's of parenting. The thing is, it could be the seven A's of uh, working with your employees. It could be the seven A's of a teacher with the classroom. These seven A's work regardless of what profession it's in or anything. Why? Because people are all the same. And the seven A's start with people and their behavior and what influences them. And so I learned from it and turned it into the seven A's of parenting. Uh, and I want to share this with you tonight. One, some people say, well, they'll complain about parenting. they say, well, you can't be a perfect parent. (laughs) Well, of course you can't. This is all in people's minds. Nobody's ever, your own kids never expect you to be a perfect parent. But people say, well, you can't be, to excuse, especially men, to excuse poor parenting and everything, say, well, you can't be a perfect parent. (laughs) I want to say I don't, but... I say, what? you can sure be a lot better than what you are right now. But thank God I don't say that, or I probably wouldn't be here. The other is, well, it's too late for me. My family's grown up. Oh, folks, it is never too late. And someday, if I get the time I'm going to write a book on, it's never too late, of stories of people coming back to me with kids, 25, 30, 35 years old, older, um, prostitutes, in jail, whatever, and how these principles started to be used by the parents and it turned that person around. And so it's never too late. But I know this, some kids are born hard to raise. You wonder if you ought to put them back in and cook them more. But they're born, hard to raise, and a lot of parents take it upon themselves. Well, where did I blow it? What did I do wrong? Often has nothing to do with the parents. You can be the greatest parent in the world. You can do everything right, every biblical principle, everything, and you have absolutely no guarantee your child won't grow up and say, I hate you and walk away. But if you do build the right relationship with that child, the chance of that happening is very remote. But let me tell you, folks, it can happen. And I could share some stories up here about some parents that have had that happen, where I know the parents, and they are the most fantastic, I'm thinking of a couple right now, most fantastic fantastic parents you can meet. And one of their sons just walked away. But you know what's interesting? About 21 years later, his parents never gave up on him. I would have. He came back. He came, 21 years later, he came back, mainly because his parents did not give up on him. So kids are hard to raise. I call them, they're born with a bent twig. They're born with a bent twig. And it's interesting, science would tell you that the best way to straighten out that twig, but they'll say there's no guarantee, but the best way is when the parents don't give up on that child and they keep trying everything they can to build that relationship around that child. They said that's about the only time ever, and so often that twig was straightened up. And so often this, it comes back to the parents. It comes back to the parents not giving up on a child. The other night, or Sunday morning, I guess, when I spoke, I shared a diagram. I want to just briefly go through it again because it becomes a foundation for what I'm going to share tonight. I call it the pyramid of the making of an individual. There's four parts to it. The top part is a small pyramid, and that would be one's behavior. That's what you see when you look at a person. You see their behavior. It's kind of like an iceberg in the ocean. You only see that little bit of ice on top. You see, I've seen many of them all over the world. But the massive part of that iceberg is out of the sight line. It's underneath the water. Well, that's the same way when you look at a person. You see their behavior, whether good, bad, or ugly. But underneath that behavior, there's a whole layer of foundation. Now, the question here is, what drives your behavior? What drives your behavior? Your values. (laughs) Folks, your values drive your behavior. You give me enough time with a young person or an older person, and I can watch them interact with them, and I can pretty well tell you what their values are. Or if I learn what the values are of a person, I can pretty well tell what type of person they're going to be, because their behavior is driven by our values. But what forms our values? What forms them? It's our beliefs. I almost like to call it your worldview. What's a worldview? It's how you view the world. Do you view the world from a scientific perspective? Do you view it from a practical, a cultural perspective? Or do you view it from a biblical perspective? Your worldview or your beliefs is what forms your values and drives your behavior. But the question I struggle with, now, most of these things like this, I can come up in a matter of several minutes with the answer to almost anything. This one took me over a year. And I almost thought, McDowell, how dumb can you be? It was so simple. It was obvious. And after about one year, I realized what forms our beliefs, I mean, creates our beliefs that forms our values and drives our behavior, relationships. Relationships, the whole bottom part, whether good, bad, or ugly. It's relationships. Whether you're a teacher at school, a worker, on the, a boss on the job with your employees, any kind of club you belong to, whatever, it's relationships. Almost always. Uh, almost all of life. And there's three, three statements I want to make. And I came up with these statements because I like to find principles of things that I can memorize and have in my mind that helps me to live out my Christian life and live out my faith without being a hypocrite. And they don't always work. But the first one is this. And with each one of these, I have deep convictions about the truth of them. This one to me, if anyone says, what's the key To raising children. What's the key? I don't even hesitate. Rules without relationships lead to rebellion, period. Kids don't respond to rules, folks. They respond to rules in the context of a loving, intimate relationship with mom and dad, and I think, especially dad. Rules without relationships lead to rebellion. Second, truth without relationships leads to rejection. You try to teach truth to your children and you don't have a good relationship with them, they'll probably reject it or go in one ear and out the other. Truth without relationships You want to talk to your children about pornography. I'll tell you, that child better know daddy or mommy really loves me. My daddy loves me. Then they'll listen to you. If you don't have that, I'm not saying you still don't do it, but you do. But it's going to be so much harder. You're going to have to work so much harder to get the same results. Or try to talk to your children about their behavior their dress, the way they wear their hair, whatever. Hairstyle, talking about hairstyle without a relationship leads to rejection, leads to rebellion. And then this is something I learned in raising my own children. Boy, is it key. Discipline without relationships, all oh, folks, leads to anger, bitterness, and resentment. I would never dream of disciplining a child who didn't know that I absolutely cared about him, loved him. Because what happens is, in the long not the short run, the long run, it almost produces the exact opposite of what you want in that child's life. Discipline without relationships leads to bitterness, resentment, and boy, does it lead to anger. Bill Clinton used to say during his campaign, some of you remember, it's the economy, stupid, it's the economy. He had that phrase in his office on the wall. And everywhere he go, he'd say, it's the economy, stupid. It's it. Well, I guess if I was Bill Clinton speaking on this, I'd say, it's the relationship, stupid. It's the, re- <laughs> it's the relationship. Uh, most problems of individuals and everything stem from poor relationships. Not all of them. And so much of joy in life and right behavior and all is a result of good relationships, of good relationships. Now, I want to talk about the seven A's, seven A's of relationships. Why do you call them seven A's? Well, because I'm not very creative with titles, and they all start with an A. And so I figured, that must be God spoke. And so I call them the seven A's. I'm going to state it, give the principle, and the results of applying that a principle. And then, because we're short on time tonight, that with maybe three of the seven, I'll give an, an example of it. The first of the seven A's Boy, I wish I'd learned these things way before I had children. I wish I'd have learned these before I got married because these seven A's are just as effective in a marriage relationship. And what I had to do, I took little stick of notes and I wrote the seven A's on them, and I stuck them on my dashboard, on my notebook, everything. On my bike, everything, I stuck the seven A's and after a while, I knew the seven A's inside and out, and I didn't need stick 'em notes anymore, because now they're stick 'em in the brain. The first of the seven A's affirmation. Affirmation. When we affirm the emotions of a young person, even adult, but I'm gonna apply this to you. when we affirm the emotions of a young person, their feelings and all, it gives them a sense. Of authenticity, of being real. In Romans 12:15, in the English Standard Version, it says this: rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. For years I never understood the impact of that verse. And this is what it means: rejoice with those who rejoice. It means this, be happy with those who are happy. If somebody is happy, be happy with them. If they are sad, be sad with them. Identify with their emotion. Identify with their belief. This is powerful, folks. When others are sad, share their sorrows. Sure. One of the hardest times for me of expressing this I remember once it was in the Denver airport. I stand out in front of the gates, and along came, I can't think of his name right now, we graduated from Wheaton together, very influential in the missionary world. And uh, I'd really had a setback financially, some things were going rough and all, and I wasn't riding very high in the saddle. And along came Gary, was his first name, along came Gary, he was so excited. I guess he'd just seen a whole bunch of people come to Christ and everything. said, Josh, how you doing? And after that, all I heard how excited he was. When and I sit there, and I just about wanted to die. And then I remember this. If others are happy, be happy with them. It doesn't say, if you're happy, be happy with them. It means it's a choice. It's a decision of the will. And so I remember one of the biggest steps of faith I took I just reached down in emotion and I pulled up from my gut the greatest enthusiasm I could ever have. And I just threw my eyes, Gary, that's so wonderful. Tell me more about it. And I'm just thinking, why don't you ask where I'm going through? But the Bible doesn't say that. It says when others are happy, be happy. It doesn't say you need to be happy and then be happy with them. Be happy with them. Oh, I'm so excited for what you happen. I'm so glad that your business is doing so well. Praise God you got that extra money. Why don't you share some of it with me? <laughs> so, I don't say that, but i got to tell you, I got, it's right up there. <laughs> uh, but when we affirm another person's emotion, it gives them that sense of authenticity, of being real. Weep with those who weep. If others are sad, be sad with them. Second, acceptance. At one time, I, I, I would say unconditional acceptance, and I realize we as humans, even born again with the love of Christ in our hearts and everything else, we still cannot love totally unconditionally. We're still hindered by our, our, the human aspect of our being. So I call it conditionless. And I feel I have more integrity when I say it that way. With conditionless acceptance, it gives a person a sense of security. Now think that through. When you know that you are accepted by that person, no matter what you do or anything, they accept you as you are. Those are about the only people, and I have a number of them around, one is sitting right down here, Dwayne Zook and his wife Jeannie, and we're just, we're going to spend, they're in here because we want to spend three days together uh, in New Orleans, and so don't come looking for us. Uh, <laughs> I will ignore you <laughs> in the Holy Spirit. Uh, but... Unconditional acceptance gives you a sense of security, and security gives you a sense of vulnerability. I don't think too many people can be very vulnerable in their life unless they know that other person accepts them for who they are, not what they do. Not what they do, for who they are. That's about the only person I can really open up to Because when you don't trust someone, you're dumb to be vulnerable to them. Why be so foolish to be vulnerable to someone, for example? Why be so foolish to be vulnerable to a man or woman who gossips, who talks about other people to other people? You know something I've learned about gossips? If they will talk to you about others, I guarantee you they'll talk to others about you. That's the kind of person they are. If they talk to you about others, they will talk to others about you. Unconditional acceptance. I learn with my kids, and you know sometimes it's it's hard to communicate to a child that I love and accept you for who you are, not what you do, because what they normally hear from mom and dad, anything positive, is when they do something positive. Isn't that true? I mean, I thought that was true of my kids. The only time I really stepped in, really praised them, is when they did something right. And this is why I try so hard over the years to have dates with my kids individually. I found out my daughters just loved to go alone on a date with Dad. And it really didn't matter where we went or what we did. And we did a lot of exciting things, but they just wanted to be alone with their Daddy. And I would try to find every way I could to set aside their performance and express how much I love and accept them as a person. And one thing I'd do, I said, you know, Kelly, if God came down and said, we're going to start all over again. I'm going to back up a few years. You're going to get married, and you're going to have kids again. I'd say, you know, Kelly, if I could pick any girl in the world, I'd pick you because I like who you are. And I'll point out, I always, but you got to be honest doing it. You can con a con, you can fool a fool, but you won't get a kid. They'll see right through you. And I express to them how much I love them as an individual. And this is where I'm always very careful praising The great things that they do without balancing out of finding a way to praise them as a person otherwise what happens and this is so detrimental to christian life when you only catch your kids doing things right and express praise or catch them doing things wrong and discipline them you produce a child who's on a performance basis where they think they have to perform to get mom's love, dad's love. And that's so subtle. And it usually develops over three, four, five, six years. And when a child becomes behavior-oriented, performance-based, they can never really experience the joy of Christ. I really believe that. And it's my responsibility to, to balance that out in my kids' lives. And then... After acceptance, as Romans 15 said, therefore, accept each other. How? The way your parents accepted you? No. Just as Christ has accepted you. How did Christ accept us? He accepted us unconditionally. Thank God. Yes. I probably never would have become a believer back then. We need the same thing, but I have to call it conditionless acceptance. And then, number three, appreciation. This one's so much fun. When you express appreciation to a child, to anyone, when you express appreciation to a child, it gives them a sense of significance. What? Okay. What is significance? How would you define significance? To me, significance is a feeling or thought that you've done or said something worthwhile. Significance is that feeling or thought, I said or I did something worthwhile. I'm significant. And this is why I developed a phrase. I meet so many Christian believers who feel very successful in business, and they are. But so many of them don't don't have that significance. They don't feel significant. And you know the difference between success and significance? Your success becomes significant when your success relates to eternity. Now think that through when your success relates to eternity you become significant his first name was Bill he was about a 27 28 year old high school speaker in secular schools oh was he good I did that for years and he was about my age but I really admired him He was incredible. And I knew I needed to talk to him about something, but I just, he's one of those guys who was the most approachable. So I never said what I eventually said to him. And one day he came to me. He said, Josh, I don't get it. I go to schools. And I see thousands come out. And I walk away, and I feel like there's something missing. He said, you go to schools. Thousands come out. And yet you walk away so filled with excitement, and joy, and everything. He said, what's the difference between you and me? Well, I wasn't going to tell him. Well, you're more handsome than I am. Because it wasn't true. No. Uh, (laughs) I said, Bill, the difference is this. I not only get up to speak to see students become better people, I get up to speak to see young people become children of God. I said, I need to take all my speaking and relate it to eternity, not to earth. He says, well, how would I do that? So for about six months, I mentored him. I never wrote out so many introductions for someone to introduce their talk and everything than Bill. And ended up, he found a way to just, you have to be very honest in the way you do it. You're not invited to that school to win people to Christ. You're invited to that school to have an impact in their behavior and all. Well, for me, having one of the most positive impacts is coming to know Christ in a way that affects your life and determines your destiny. So I said, the difference between you and me, I have a spiritual element to my talk, and I have a goal and a purpose to go to heaven, take as many people with me as I can, and enjoy every moment of it. So it took him about six months. And I got to tell you, if I had to name one of the best high school, Christian high school speakers I've ever met, it would be Bill. Boy, did God use him. Well, one, he was just so gifted, talented as an individual. And then to add the message to it, he, he was a time bomb. And every time he'd go off in a classroom, uh, And what happened was, and what changed his life, he took his success as a speaker. He was the best out there. But he took his success as a speaker and related it to eternity by bringing in the relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And that made him significant. He knew then he had done something worthwhile. And for the kids that didn't come to Christ, the rest of their lives, they would know how. Appreciation. In Matthew 3, and a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son, and I'm fully pleased with him. I remember I said to Bill, I said, if God was here and he opened up the heavens, and he looked down upon you as a high school speaker, would he say the same thing about you? And he rightly answered it, no. But about six months later, our Heavenly Father would have. This is my beloved son, my beloved servant, who I'm well pleased with. It's when he took his success and related it to eternity. The, uh, with so many businessmen, they're so successful, but their success does not relate to eternity, of people coming to know Jesus, understanding the Father and everything. And I don't think I've ever met with a businessman yet when we talk about this one-on-one that wasn't able to turn it to being significant. With whatever the business was, you can tie it in to Christ. And often what you want to do is maybe meet with your pastor and discuss it, have him help you. Uh, Maybe one of the deacons and the elders who really seems to have a dynamic testimony in the secular world, ask them to work with you, to take your success and turn it in to significance. Then, I think these pages turn hard. Availability. When we're available to people, it usually says this, I am Important. When somebody comes to you, maybe you're busy, but you free up some time to talk to them. I guarantee that person feels I am important to you. Most people spell love T I M E, time. It's one of, to me. It's one of the most precious things you have to share with others. Not your money, your time. You can make a lot of money, billions of dollars, but you only got 24 hours a day to live. And so that's limited. But availability, Jesus said <laughs> there was some commotion going on and everything, and uh, Christ turned and He saw there were some children over there, and the parents were with him. They're trying to get him in to see the Savior. The I mean, just like they probably wanted an autograph. Could you imagine getting an autograph of the Messiah? And so these parents wanted to get their kids in there and meet Jesus, meet the Messiah, the Savior, and all, and probably get an autograph, maybe a hug or something, or even better than that, get a photo together. In those days, it'd be a lithograph uh, together. And when Jesus saw that, he said, Let those children come to me, don't stop them. Do not hinder those little children to come unto me. And the first part of that verse is, some parents brought their children to Jesus so he could lay his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples scolded the parents for bothering him. And boy, did Jesus call them down. Probably a little sharpness to his tone, do not forsake those little children to come unto me. What do you say to those parents? I'm available. I'm available. Let's say at your job, you're working, you need to see the owner, the boss. So you go to secretary and say, uh, Jennifer, I need to see so-and-so. Oh, I'm sorry, he's so busy right now. His schedule's... Off the charts, he can't see anyone until tomorrow. Well, look, would you just call him and tell him? Okay, I will. Hi, let me Okay, he just says he can't see you until tomorrow. As you walk away from there, down in your gut, what would you feel? If only I'd been more important, he would have had time for me. If I'd been a vice president, a senior director or something, he would have had time for me. That probably had nothing to do with it. But that's how we internalize it when somebody doesn't have time for us. Well, let's say you need to see the boss. You go and you say, uh, Jennifer, I need to see so-and-so. Well, he's really busy. He, he, his schedule's over the wall. He can't see anyone today. Well, look, would you at least do your job and call him? Okay, I will, but it won't do any good. But sir, you're busy. You've got all the okay. Hung up. You can go in. He'll see you now. Deep down in, what would you be feeling? I am important. I am important. When people are available to us, we feel important to them. When they're not available, we feel we're not important. And I would have my kids often come up to me where it was just impossible for me to spend some time with them. Or I would be at a conference, some people would come up, and I just, I just, it was impossible for me to do it. My wife solved that for me. And this really works. She said, honey, you can't meet with everyone all the time. She said, but try saying this. Uh, Barbara or Jack or Bob, whatever, Oh, I wish I could spend some time with you. I would love to, but, but right now I just can't. But if I could, I would. And maybe suggest tomorrow, can we? And she said, honey, with 99% of people, that'll satisfy them. And so I've used that so many times in my life, but I realize I got to be careful I don't overuse it or misuse it. I really would have ministry time, but there's just something personal here I want to do, and right now it's more important to me. And to say, well, you know, I wish I could, Bob, right now, but I can't, but maybe tomorrow. And so i got to make sure I don't misuse that. But my wife really helped me out of that situation to be available. And then, (laughs) number five, affection. Affection. When we express affection to someone, it gives them a sense of lovability. Of lovability. Someone here, I don't think it was Jacob, somebody else said last night or yesterday or today, said, there's two things every person in the world wants. And I forget what they said. were two things, I don't even remember them. But I thought they were going to say, and I almost yelled it out. There's two truths that I've seen as true in every culture of the world, every continent, every ethnic background. Every person in the world has two great needs, to love and to be loved. To love and to be loved are two of the greatest needs of people in the world. And, of course, God uses others to express that. In John 15, Jesus said, this is my commandment, love each other. Boy, you know, sometimes that's hard for me because there's some people I don't like. I don't. You say, well, it's horrible as a Christian. You ought to like everyone. Show me where Jesus ever said that. Never. He said, I'm to love everyone, not like them. I can love a person I wouldn't want to spend a full day in a boat fishing with them. I mean, there's some people I just, I know I probably shouldn't say this, but it's true that I don't like. But you know what? Many of them I've come to like when by faith, I would love them. And because when you love someone, you spend time with them. And a lot of time, my problem was, I really didn't know that person. And spending time with the person, you know, this guy's not so bad after all. You know, he's redeemable by me. (laughs) There's two ways to express affection. Two key ways. One is verbally. I love you. With my children and raising them, my goal for each one of my child, especially when I was home, was to express I love you 10 times a day. From the time they'd wake up to the time they'd go to sleep, I would express I love you, or words similar to that, 10 times a day. Now, to be honest with you, a lot of days I never did that. Maybe some days it was one time. Other days, five, six, seven, eight times. But a good number of days, 10. But I figure out, I I know myself, if I don't have a goal, I usually don't even come halfway to that goal uh, in what I do. And so I need a good goal. So my goal is 10 times a day to look someone in the eyes and say, I love you. Now, there's not a whole lot of days that happens. But that's my goal to verbally express, I love you, I love you, I love you. (laughs) That's probably the most powerful phrase in the world. I literally could write a book on the results of people saying to someone, I love you. Growing up, and I wish to God this was not true in my life even now, I grew up hating, despising my father. He was a town drunk. And let me tell you, it's not easy You go to school, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade, and kids make jokes about your dad downtown in the gutter making a fool of yourself, of himself. And they're all laughing, and I'd laugh with them. But let me tell you, inside, it hurt. It hurt. And I called my dad up to meet with me at a diner a 50 diner's, well, it was in the 50s, in Battle Creek, Michigan. And I was going to tell him how much I despised him and why, and that I never wanted to see him again. So we met in this diner. The wait- waitress came over, took our uh, order, was walking away off to the right. And I said, Dad, I've come here to tell you I love you. Boom. I don't know who was most surprised, him hearing it or me saying it. (laughs) You probably have something in your life that would say this to you. That's when I knew my life had been changed. That's when I knew Christ had done something in my heart and in my mind, because I wasn't used to that. I was used to loving those I wanted to love and hating those I wanted to hate. And I felt freedom in both. And I said to the man that I chose to hate, I love you. Ended up, I was in a very serious car accident. I was stopped at a train crossing. A man doing about 50, 55 miles an hour, never slowed down, hit me right in the back, shot my car forward, a little Ford Maverick, to within about six to nine inches from the moving train, or it would have ripped the car apart. I went forward, came back, and the seat of those men, in those days, they were made of steel that seat was bent back that far. And when I got out and everyone looked down, that steel was twisted just like that from my head. In those days, they didn't have the headrest. And my head had gone all the way over and tore all my ligaments loose. And, of course, I ended up in the hospital right away. And My father uh, came to see me. He, I wasn't dying, but he thought I was. I was just hurting a lot. And... Uh, he came over, and he stood in the door for a while. And I could see he had been crying. I never saw my dad cry, ever. He walked in, walked back and forth alongside of my bed. And I was all strapped in a strap around here, here, my show, everything, because they didn't want me to move. They were afraid I'd further southern My lower spinal cord and my neck was both severed to a certain degree. So they had me all locked in so I couldn't move on a board in the bed. And he came in, and all I could do was flash my eyes like that. And he came up, and he stopped, and he leaned over right in front of my face. And he said, Son, how can you love a father such as I? I said, Dad, six months ago, I hated you. But, Dad, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. And he came into my life, and Dad I love you. It brought him to Christ. In a little old Union City, Michigan, we were in a meeting. A lot of the town leaders were there. And they said, Mac, why are you so different? You're a different person. What happened? I was sitting at the end of the table. My father leaned forward, pointed down to me. Because of my son, when he looked me in the eye, when he had every right to hate me and despise me, he said, Daddy, I love you. He said, That broke my heart. And then he shared his testimony. The power of that phrase, I love you. And then I got to wrap this up, I think. I don't know what time it is. I don't have a watch. <laughs> but it's, I'm sure. Is express appropriate physical affection with appropriate physical expression with a hug, kissing the cheek an arm around the shoulders, and embrace holding the hand. Express that affection with appropriate, visible expression that's appropriate. And then six, approach their world. When you approach their world, it gives a sense of connection when you step into their world. In First Corinthians 12, you know it says, love does not demand its own way. Well, what does it demand? The other's way. Almost all of us, when we're born for natural for us, is to demand our way. And one of the things you see changes in your life when you come to Jesus and you mature is that shifts to where you think of other people first. That was the first significant change I saw in my life. I climbed the ladder of success over people. I hate saying that. But one of the biggest things when I realized, I was thinking of how can I help you instead of how can you help me? And when I started to think of other people first. Now, in your life, that might not even be significant. In my life, it was huge, folks. And I knew then, boy, God has done something in my life where I think for the most part I became other-person-centered. But the old self keeps, likes to spring through all the time. Last, accountability. When we give our children reasonable rules and limits and boundaries, it gives them a sense of responsibility. In Romans 14, it says, yes, each of us will give a personal accountab- account to God. I think the best way to prepare a child when they grow up become an adult to be ready to do that is to hold them accountable when they are young. Teens research shows teens are least prone to heavy drinking if their parents have scored high on accountability and warmth. All the studies show this. A new study shows that teens are likely to have non-drinking friends if their parents scored high on warmth and accountability. And it shows, to be an effective parent, you need to give your children limits. And I am totally convinced they want to give your children limits and hold them accountable. Rules without relationships lead to rebellion. These seven A's have been so helpful for me, who didn't have a background of good relationships, to build, first of all, with my children and others. Please, if you wrote them down or go to the website, they're going to have my a website, download it, and maybe you have to do what I do. Take these seven A's, put them on little stick notes, put them on the dash of your car, on your attaché bag, put them on your notebook, whatever, put them on your office desk, everything as a reminder of how to build those relationships.